first grade, I had a teacher who asked us, does anybody know anything about race? And I raised my hand up, yeah, you got the 100-yard dash, you got the 50-yard dash, I know all about race. And she's like, no, no, there's, there's another type of race, and I want to explain it to you. Now, she came to me and said, here's the colored people, here's the Negro race. This is the lowest of the lowest. These are the laziest, these are the most shiftless, these are the most dishonest. You can't trust them, you've got to really watch them because they will steal you. She, that's how she talked about me in front of that class. I'm John Heilman, and this is Hell and High Water, a podcast from The Recount. This week, for the very first episode of Hell and High Water, I am talking to Marcus Johnson, the legendary NBA star and now a color commentator for the team he played for, the Milwaukee Bucks. We talk about race and sports, protests and police, and then at the end, in our parting shot, Marcus's all-time on-court starting five. In the 1970s and 1980s, from Crenshaw High School in Los Angeles through UCLA and then in the NBA with the Milwaukee Bucks, Marcus Johnson was one of the most exciting basketball players in the country, a five-time All-Star who sort of invented the position of point forward. Today, MJ is one of the voices of the Milwaukee Bucks. He's a broadcast analyst talking about the team for Fox Sports Net and All of that has given him, in the last couple of weeks, a front row courtside seat for really the most explosive story that is playing out in America right now. The story that kind of was kicked off with the police shooting of Jacob Blake seven times in the back in Kenosha, not very far from Milwaukee where the Bucks play. The protests that followed in Kenosha, in Milwaukee, throughout the country, and then first led by the Bucks, the team, and then by the whole of the NBA— the decision to boycott a couple of days of playoffs in the middle of the Republican convention, all of which is why I thought it would be a good idea to kick this podcast off with Marcus Johnson. So, Marcus, welcome, and we're going to dig into this stuff. It's great to see you, man. How are you? I'm doing good, John. I'm doing well. I mean, uh, all things considered, uh, happy to join you to talk about some what I feel is very important stuff. As you know, right now, I'm sitting here in Milwaukee. We're shooting this week for the circus all over Wisconsin, but in Kenosha. And here in Milwaukee, Joe Biden was here today. Uh, Donald Trump was here uh, a couple days ago. And all of that kind of as a result of the Jacob Blake shooting. It's been uh, an eventful week here in Wisconsin and an emotional couple of weeks. Tell me about where you were when you first learned about Blake's shooting. I was playing golf on a Sunday with a former teammate of mine who went to Marquette, Lloyd Walton. So we played at a course in Lake Geneva, 45 minutes outside of Milwaukee, Hawksview, and I shot an 85, one of the best golf rounds I've ever shot. But being my age, uh, we, I got back about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was tired. So I just kind of just kind of laid around and, and took a nap and was nodding off all day. I checked my Twitter account that evening, and um, I had a – message from someone I didn't know. It was uh, support Jacob Blake. And I didn't know who, what, where, when, and how, anything about Jacob Blake. And it, it, it said, Marcus, you've got to speak on this during the telecast tomorrow. Uh, the Bucks involved in, in the first round of the playoffs against Orlando. So I said, okay, well, let me find the video and see what uh, happened to Jacob Blake. So I found the video I watched the video. It was really late at night. It's, it's probably 12, 31 a.m. You know, I napped and woke up in the middle of the night. And I saw this young man come from around his van with uh, two police officers, guns drawn on him, following him. Saw him open his door, and then I saw the officer grab for his white T-shirt, and I saw 
him unload his revolver into the back of this young man. And I tell you, John, I mean, just thinking about it now, it was one of the most emotionally wrenching experiences of my life. I just sat back on the couch in the in the apartment where I was staying right across from Fiserv Forum where the Bucks put all their G League players, all their new guys. I was staying there for a month. I, I just slouched back on my couch and I just started crying my eyes out because it, it just it just seems like a, a never ending, never ending story having these types of situations happen. Uh, the young black man walking away reminds me of the young man down in Atlanta. I've seen two or three of these types of situations over the last five years where, where young black men are walking away from police officers and they still get shot. And, and, and this guy got shot seven times in his back and then I find out that he had three young boys from eight to three years old or whatever it is, but but sitting in the car watching all this and 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 probably crying and screaming their eyes out when their when their father was going through what he was going through on the other side of the van before the shooting even happened. And and so it just left me with uh, a, a, man, a sense of almost helplessness, hopelessness at that that point. And and the main feeling that I have is just how long, man? How long is this going to, to, to last? It just seems like we go through one case of George Floyd in Minneapolis. We go through Breonna Taylor in Louisville, and you just don't get a rest from this stuff. Just tired, man. I'm just tired of watching this shit, man. Just tired of watch. And and I'm not even talking about young Mr. Blake and whatever he might have did, may not have did, weapon or no. I don't know what happened. I just know he got shot in the back seven times. And it, it just pissed me off. It frustrated me. It saddened me that... This was the current state of affairs in this country and that this this kind of crap is still going on. So part of the power of this moment is that it comes on the heels of uh, the George Floyd killing, uh, which feels in one sense like it was just yesterday, but also like an eon ago in the NBA. There was a reaction to the Floyd death that was pretty dramatic. And the NBA was trying to figure out what to do next with their season. And there were strong differences of opinion about whether they should enter the bubble or not. Tell me about that moment and that debate inside the league and the team. The George Floyd thing just galvanized not only the NBA, but just the world. The protests, the counting down, the, the minutes that the officer had uh, his knee on this, on this young man's neck. And it, it just seemed to stir something in this current group of players in the league that, you know, they were sick and tired of it and they were, they were going to try and do what they could. They didn't want to take it anymore. They were going to try and figure out if playing again was the right move, if continuing to protest and being their communities to try and, and, and bring about some change in terms of social injustice. So they were really grappling. Uh, one guy on our team in particular, George Hill, who was one of the most considered, measured, thoughtful Res- players that I've been res- around. Widely respected in the league. Very yeah. widely respected because he's, he's an older veteran, mid-30s. He's been a winner every place he's been. And he's done so much for his community in Indianapolis, started schools and just a really, really great guy in terms of giving back. His whole approach was, why are we even coming down to this damn place anyway, talking about Orlando? So so, so the, the, the struggle was whether or not to continue the season. So the NBA came in, as Adam Silver has oftentimes does. He got ahead of this situation and he told these young men, look, if you come to Orlando and look, it's a financial consideration also. You lose a lot of money because you shut down the league in mid-March. You have no playoffs. You have no chance to earn all this income and, and, and to make a lot of money. And so it's a financial consideration. But he tells the players that's not going to be what it's all about. 
It's going to be also about social injustice. And you guys will get a chance to display your emotions, your feelings on your jerseys with different slogans. You'll get a chance to uh, continue the fight. We'll donate, I think, $300 million to causes that had something to do. with. So, so he, he painted a really appealing picture for these young men to continue the season. And there were some that wanted to. There were some that didn't. They had some, some heated discussions about that. So they decided to come to Orlando with the understanding that they would use this as a platform right. for change, as an ability to have their voices heard. And I, re- I remember George Hill saying that he really regretted coming to Orlando because now his voice was muted. And my response to him on air before they played that uh, or didn't play that fifth game was, was, we hear you. You know, your voice is not muted. Your actions are not in vain. This whole effort is not in vain. We hear you. That was the setup in terms of them coming to Orlando. So then you get the buses with Black Lives Matter. You get different coaches saying Black Lives Matter, which impressed me. I mean, you had a lot of coaches that that kind of surprised me in their support for Black Lives. You know, the Greg Popovich is always supports movements like yeah. this. Other coaches kind of coming out supporting Black Lives Matter was a positive. So it was a positive going down there with that understanding that we're going to continue this cause, this very worthwhile and worthy cause. That was a decision, and obviously, you know, one that. You know, you had, in addition to George Hill, you had people like Kyrie Irving who thought that it would be maybe a distraction, that the players would be better off staying out of the bubble and continuing to take part in the protests outside that weird hermetically sealed environment that the NBA has, I mean, in some ways impressively erected in the sense that it's kept every, anyone from getting COVID-19. So that's at least one level of a success. But then this thing happens, the Jacob Blake thing happens. And it seems to, on your team, on the Bucks, trigger a different reaction, which obviously is not to flee the bubble, but to boycott, to, to strike, to decide not to play the game. You talk to these players all day long, Marcus. Um, so give me some insight into why the Bucks decided to lead on this uh, and do the boycott or the strike or whatever you want to call it uh, of this playoff game that sort of set off this whole chain reaction. Why did the team feel like they were the right team to take the first step and cause the ripple effects that led all of the other NBA teams, the whole league really, to follow? A quote from Rabbi Hillel and, and, and Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama has used it. If not you, then who? If not now, then when? The atrocity and, and watching that video had these guys move beyond what you can believe. And so what happens is that, from my understanding, George Hill, who was not activated for that game. That's the first thing we noticed, John, was that George Hill was not on the active player list for that game. tonight. So he wasn't going to play. He had decided to, to boycott that game personally. My understanding is that Sterling Brown, passionate young man about these issues, had his own run-in with the Milwaukee police a couple of years ago, was tased and, and beaten and, and the whole deal. It's in, in litigation right now, that case against the uh, Milwaukee Police Department. But Sterling Brown, I think, stood up and said, I want to stand with my teammate George Hill. And this is like 30 minutes before game time. This is not something that was premeditated or talked about the night before, or even that morning or a couple hours earlier. This is 30 minutes before game time. And Sterling Brown said, I'm going to stand with my teammate. I'm not going to play. I'm not going to go out there. I don't want to play. I, I want to sit and just stand in, in, in solidarity with George Hill. My understanding is that other members of the team said, wait a minute, let's talk about this. You know, we do things as a team. And we got two guys here who feel very passionately about this. We've all been moved beyond imagination by watching what happened to Jacob Blake and, 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 his, and the seven hot ones, as his father likes to describe it, as the seven hot ones to the back that he took. Uh, which which really kind of puts it in a proper perspective. I mean, getting shot seven times, that's seven hot ones in the back. And so Sterling Brown said, I'll stand with George Hill. The other guys talked about it half an hour before game time. They decided not to play the game, but asked to get on the horn, get on the phone 
with everybody from the attorney general from the state of Wisconsin to the to the lieutenant governor of the state of Wisconsin. And they were talking about just kind of what things they could do, what, what was available to them, what type of pressure they could apply. But it was a collective effort on the part of the coaching staff, the team, and it was initiated by George Hill's stance not to play and then Sterling Brown following suit and saying, I'm going to stand beside my teammate. You know this team really well. You know these yeah. people from the from the front office to to the ball boys, right? For someone who's not a huge NBA fan, I am, but for someone who's not and listening to this, is this a very political team? Is this a team that's driven by activism? What do we conclude about the Bucks from the fact that they did take this kind of very bold step that then had these various consequences that are, I think, historic in a lot of ways? I'm going to give you a quick story with, with, with me personally. Okay, so, so my rookie year, they asked me to do a speaking engagement about 20, 30 minutes outside of Milwaukee. I, I get in my car. I get lost. I pull into a gas station. It's probably 6, 7 o'clock at night, just getting dark. The gas station attendant sees me, a black man, pulling up in my white Monte Carlo with the blue top. He runs inside, locks his office, and tells me to go away, go away. I'm like, look, man, I'm lost. I just need I need directions. I'm with the Milwaukee Bucks. I got to sign some autographs at this high school. Go away. I'm going to call the cops. Okay. Fast forward a couple of years later. I'm having dinner with James Lofton, great wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers. He's telling me about an autograph signing after I shared my story where this father and son tandem come up to him, and the father says, Look, son, now here is a nigger. Now, they're good niggers. They're bad niggers. Now, I want you to know the difference. This right here is a good nigger, so he's, he's okay. But, but there's a bunch of bad niggers you got to watch out for. And James and I, we laughed about this. At dinner, he, he with his wife, me with a friend of mine, we laughed about this, John, as, as a default defense mechanism so that we don't have to feel that humiliation that we both had went through. We're young men, 22, 23 years old. We laughed about this. And I, and I think about these young men, the Milwaukee Bucks, tying it all together. This shit's not funny to them, John. This shit ain't funny no more. It's nothing to laugh about. They don't have to go to this default humor mechanism and act like everything is okay and everything is fine. When inside, I mean, you're burning up. I mean, you're feeling all all these emotions that, that, that lead to all kinds of different issues in your life because you don't know how to properly process it because you never had never had the outlet to do so. And these young men have the outlet and they're using that outlet. They're using this platform for change. And I am so proud of what they're doing. And it's part of this organization. We, you know, we got Mark Lazary, Wes Eden, Jamie Dyan and our, our, our owners. We, we've got John Horst, our general manager. We've got an organization. Alex Lazary was a guy that helped with the Democratic National Convention, bringing that to Milwaukee. We've got politically active people in the organization. I don't think the team is politically active. Our coach, Mike Budenholzer, he grew up in Holbrook, Arizona. He grew up near a reservation. His friends were Native Americans, black kids, white kids, you know, Hispanic kids, just, just a rainbow coalition of people would fill his backyard playing basketball. So he, he understands watching what Native Americans that he grew up with had to go through. So we've got people who are empathetic outside of the players to the plight of what black Americans have had to deal with in this country for far too long and have supported these young men in their efforts to try and change things. All right, we will be right back after a short ad break. I want to step back and and talk to you a little bit about you and how this moment kind of fits into the arc of your life and your history, right? When I was a kid growing up in Los Angeles, you were at that point like the best, you were the all 
all whatever Planet Crenshaw, and you yeah, and you were good. famous. I mean, you, you were well known in L.A. as the best high school basketball player. You were about ten years old than me, and and my my dad and I watched. You'd see right. Crenshaw and Fremont, and and you were a rising star in the high school basketball world. You then went on and played at UCLA, where you were all American. You came to L.A. from uh, Nacogdoches, where you were born in Louisiana. Nacogdoches, Nacogdoches, Nacogdoches is in Texas. Nacogdoches, Nacogdoches, you got to say it right. Okay, I just learned something on this podcast. It's good. This is gonna be, I, okay, I, I'm okay. going to learn that's a lot what, from this that's podcast. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so you get to L.A. in the early 60s, right? Just talk me through growing up first in Louisiana, then growing up in Los Angeles, seeing the stuff you saw, and then making the passage into the NBA. And, you know, that's a different, there's two different kinds of racism there. There's the yeah. racism in Louisiana, there's a the racism in L.A. They're both real, right. but they're different. right. Okay, let me give you the racism in, in Louisiana. So I'm a young kid, four or five years old, the big Christmas parade in Natchitoches, Louisiana, right along the, the Red River, right in the middle of downtown, very scenic place. Santa Claus comes right down the middle of the street. There's black kids on one side, there's white kids on the other. Santa Claus throws the candy only to the white side of the street. I remember asking my mother, how come we're not getting candy on this side? And she just kind of looked at me and had a sad face and said that, you know, I'll, I'll explain it to you one day or something something to, to that effect. We had segregated swimming pools. You, you, you were, there was a colored-only section. There was the white section. That I remember very, very vividly. Uh, when I got to Los Angeles, now here's the difference. I moved to L.A. at, at, at 1961, first grade. I had a teacher at Manhattan Place Elementary School who asked us, does anybody know anything about race? And I raised my hand up. Yeah, you got the 100-yard dash. You got the 50-yard <laughs> dash. I know all about race. And she's like, no, no, there's another type of race, and I want to explain it to you. She brought up myself, this young white kid by the name of Teddy Eccles. If you remember the Beverly Hillbillies, he played the nephew of Mil Milburn Drysdale. He was in my class oh, at God. that time. Teddy Eccles, white kid, me, uh, the Asian girl, and a uh, Hispanic boy. And so she went down the row and started with the Hispanic boy and said, now here's the Mexican, they're hardworking, but you know, you gotta watch them. Now, now, now here's the, the, the Asian, they're really smart and uh, you know, all this. And yeah, they did start World War II, but they're basically good people. Now she came to me and said, here's the colored people. Here's the Negro race. Here's the Negro race. This is the lowest of the lowest. These are the laziest. These are the most shiftless. These are the most dishonest. You can't trust them. You've got to really watch them because they will steal you. She, that's how she talked about me in front of that class. And of course, she went to the white white boy and said, now this is the white race. This is the best race. I went home. I told my mom. My mom came up and cussed this teacher out up, up one side of the street and down the other. So that's that's kind of the West Coast version of the racism. Fast forward to, to high school. I'm at a basketball game, frat games. Uh, the black frats used to play at my high school, Crenshaw High School. I'm 16 years old, John, having a great time. I mean, it was all the stepping and the dancing and great basketball on the floor. And I find out from these two pretty young ladies where the after party was. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going I'm to meet them at the after party. I'm 16. They're in college. You yeah, can imagine. Can all imagine. right. So, so I'm, it's in my neighborhood, but there's a street, Angeles Vista, that, that has a funky kind of a turn. So I, I, I missed the turn. And I realized I missed the turn. It's by the Foundation for the Junior Blind. I look in my rearview mirror. It's a foggy night, Saturday night. I don't see anybody behind me. No, nothing. I, nobody's in front of me. I do a U-turn, middle of the street. All of a sudden, I hear brakes screeching behind me. I look at my rearview mirror, and, and the red lights come on. It's a cop car. They'd been following me with their lights off, and I didn't know it. I pull up to Angeles Vista Street right in front of the party. The two girls that invited me, they're on the porch. The cops jump out, LAPD, two white officers. They yank me out of the car. They throw me down, slam me down on the hood of my car, 
pull out the pistol. I feel the cold steel of the pistol right behind my right ear. They're talking trash. What the hell are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. They look at my driver's license. They see that I'm 16 years old. The only thing that saved my ass that night was that those two ladies on that porch went inside, told some people. They came out. Crowd kind of developed. They were like, leave him alone. Leave him alone. They were telling him, go back inside. This, this, this had nothing to do with you. And all the time, kind of roughing me up. They look at my license. They see that I'm 16 years old. And the cop says to me, you know, look. You know, what are you doing out here this late at night? It's, it's almost midnight. You're 16 years old. Look, if, if, if we see your black ass on the street again tonight, nigga, we're going to kick it for you. And, and so they let me go and I went home. But it wasn't for the grace of God turning up in front of that party yeah. that that kind of saved my bacon. And so so those kinds of things, when I shared that, I hadn't talked about that in years. I shared it on, on just moved to share it on Facebook during this whole time of talking about police yeah. abuse. And you'd be surprised at least. 10 to 15 other guys that I knew shared their own personal experiences and everybody was kind of nonchalant. Matter of fact, like, yeah, man, that's LAPD shit. Back in those days, they would kick your ass just for, for, for looking at them wrong. And so that was the, the, the atmosphere of black youth growing up in Los right. Angeles. I'm not talking about down south, but Los Angeles with that, that, that police force that we looked at as an occupational army at times because of how confrontational and just uh, how, how they treated us as, as a black community. Yeah. So I've had firsthand experiences with a lot of that stuff, man. And I'll tell you what, it, it just makes it, again, me even more proud that we've got some young men standing up trying to change things today. You go from Louisiana, from the town I can't name, um, to Los Angeles, to yeah, that one, yeah. that's the one I can't pronounce, to the town in Los Angeles I can name. You then end up, you know, on your plan for UCLA, you know, there is nothing yeah. more, in some ways, in sports, more glamorous than being a an all-American basketball player under John Wooden, win a national championship with UCLA, right? That's a, you know, that's that's life in yep. the fast lane when it comes to college, right? And then you're off to the NBA. You're drafted, what, like third, first round, like third draft pick that year in 70, not? 77. 77. But listen, I don't want to cut you off, but, but, but that draft, 1977, I was the first John Wooden Award winner. I, I won every college player of the year award out there. Should have been number one. My, my agent, David Falk, had dinner with my mom and I, and my father, and he explained to us that uh, I won't go number one because the league is looking for white players and Marcus is not white. And my mother looked at him in the eye and said, we know he's not white. You don't need to tell us that. And this is a young David Falk. And I have nothing. I love David. Nothing against him at all. But but this is what happened during that draft. So Kent Benson goes number one to the Milwaukee Bucks. Number two, Kansas City has the second pick. They've got a white forward by the name of Scott Wedman, who's a, who's a solid player. They asked my former college teammate, Richard Washington, what about Marcus Johnson? How good is he? How does he compare to Scott Webman? He tells him Scott Webman could not carry his jock strap. He is so much better than Scott Webman. If you're thinking about drafting him based on that, you need to draft him. They passed on me at number two. Back in those days, John, there was an unwritten rule. And Midwest teams, Kansas City, Chicago, Milwaukee, Atlanta down south, New Orleans. If you look at the rosters in the mid-70s, it was always at least six whites, six blacks. There was a quota system. Right. or Most of the time, seven whites and five blacks. And so there was a, a real deal back in those days where, where, where you're, you're really racially conscious about the makeup of your basketball roster and you wanted to appease the white fans. And there was a lot of communication and talk in the media about the league being way too black. It was 90% black at that time. The league is too black. Corporate America does not want to see a bunch of black faces out there. We need more white faces on the floor. And so that was kind of the atmosphere coming into the league that, again, you have to kind of look at and not allow that experience to make you so jaded. But inside, there was this burning anger and, 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 and intensity and passion with me. So when I went against Kit Benson, my own teammate in practice, 
Every day I try to dunk on him, try to embarrass him, try to make him feel the humiliation that I was feeling, but didn't know how to express at that young age of 21 years old. You know, when you came into it, the league was not anything like what it is now, let alone now this giant international phenomenon. It was not even a national phenomenon. And it's black players, by and large, who drove that transformation. Yet, in some ways, the things that we're seeing, not just in the league, but in the streets, right, the things that the players are now reacting to, to go to the other part of the conversation we're having, are exemplars of the fact that not much has changed. Like, in some ways, like, much has not changed at all. Is it a place in which the league now where African Americans are genuinely empowered in the league, where they are not just making money for white owners, but where they have an actual position where they can exercise political and social power? That that is what the hope is, I think, for a lot of people. Do you see it? When you look at the league now, do you think this league is in the process of transformation in a way that could be genuinely significant for sports and for society? I think it's headed in that direction now but all you have to do is look no further than to how many black people players whatever have ownership in the league and it's it's michael jordan i'm trying to think if there's anybody else but michael jordan down in charlotte um there's been other people that i've known personally trying to trying to make that move uh, individually and for whatever reason have not uh, been able to pull it off, have not been able to do so. They've got the resources to, to do it. One of my teammates, Junior Bridgman, is worth dang near a billion dollars. And, and uh, you know, he's uh, been interested in, in, in owning a franchise and, and it just hasn't happened for him yet. It's a good old boys club that uh, they're very selective in terms of who they let in. And so that's one thing to look at. But also even, even on a micro level, I mean, just how many general managers, you know, how many um, other positions of, of power and decision-making team presidents. I mean, you've had some people, I'm thinking of Joe Dumars, I'm thinking of Wayne Embry again with the Milwaukee Bucks, the first African-American executive in professional sports. This is mid-70s. It's funny how the Bucks have kind of been at the forefront. You don't think of Milwaukee necessarily as being this this major progressive type of a community, but in terms of racial stuff, I mean, uh, you know, with Kareem, Oscar Robertson, there's been some people in Milwaukee that have, that have done some things. So, uh, so until there is more black ownership in this league and, and people who can really have a voice, a strong voice in, in, in the direction of the league, uh, you, you can't say that there has been that much change. It's still the players, even though they're very well compensated players. Don't get me wrong. Right. I mean, these guys, I think about the money they're making, John, you know, $30, $40 million you know, a year is just it's just obscene based on where we were. I came in, my first contract, I think I made 95000 and bumped that up to 110000 and 120. So from that standpoint, they're doing really well for themselves. What I do appreciate, the LeBron Jameses of the league, the, the different guys, uh, Dwayne Wade I can think of who made a stance, uh, a political stance uh, back in the Trayvon Martin days. There's been some guys that have really took the forefront in terms of standing. Jalen Brown of, of Boston yeah. is a guy that I really respect in terms of what he's what he's got to say and there's other guys around the league that have been really vocal so I, I see I see a change happening it's always slow incremental steps that kind of have to be taken in this this kind of a situation but I do think this generation of players have their minds in in the right place in terms of understanding the issues and understanding their power their platform and what they can do to help uh, to, to, to make a change. All right, it is time for us to go and pay the bills, so hang in there, and we'll be right back. The whole discussion of the league and the way in which it's interacted with 
this moment in America where racial justice, um, law and order as a campaign issue, all of it kind of inevitably leads, all roads lead inevitably to Donald Trump as they often do. And I'm curious just as you think about the intersection here of these social forces and this league, the way in which sports is kind of colliding with those forces. Let's talk about Trump for a second. Do we have you to? Know, <laughs> do we have you to? Know, he's, you know, he's, he, has, it, he injects himself into everything, right? You know, Colin Kaepernick obviously is, a, is the, the inheritor of the tradition of Muhammad Ali, the tradition of John Carlos and Tommy Smith. You know, tr- Trump goes after uh, Colin Kaepernick and says, you know, calls him an SOB. He has tra- attacked LeBron. You know, allies of the presidents like Laura Ingram have gone on television and attacked LeBron and said, shut up and dribble which is, does not seem to be what the league wants to do right now. Shut up and dribble seems to be the opposite of what the league is interested in doing right now. I'm curious what you think about the way that Trump has tried to politicize sports in the way that I've just described and the way in which he has decided to target some of the most famous, respected black athletes in the country. Well, the one thing that always comes uh, from... Uh our president, Donald Trump, is the lack of intelligence. Uh, whether It seems like any black person that he's talking about, from Maxine Waters to LeBron James, is not a very smart person. You always you always hear that. And But the thing, John, that I loved was once the Bucks and and here's the here's the rub. The Bucks got the, the, the disrespectful time slot in the playoffs every single game. We're playing at 1230 <laughs> in Milwaukee. 12.30 in the afternoon where, where local businesses can't make any money. The bars, the restaurants can't make any money. And it turns out that the Bucks, because of their boycott, they were the first domino to fall because they played the first game at 12.30. They decided not to play. Other teams in the league first followed suit and then other leagues. So now we've got America's pastime. The National Football League, I think, had, had boycotted a few practices around that time. Major League Baseball canceled and, and boycotted some games. Uh, women's tennis boycotted. Uh, a match. You, you had uh, the WNBA boycott. You had the NHL, John. The NHL did not play a playoff game that night and had Black Lives Matter on the scoreboard. I never thought as long as I live, I'd see the NHL with Black Lives Matter on their scoreboard. So here's my point is this, is that that, that President Trump can, he can you know denigrate the, the NBA and talk about our players and our collective IQ all he wants, but it's not just the NBA. This thing is filtered through all the professional sports. Everyone realized that that there there's some injustices that need to be addressed, and so I thought it was poetic justice that we had the NHL, the bastion of kind of white America, that the white people just love their hockey. You know, you you know I don't know if you're a big <laughs> hockey fan, but they love their hockey, and for the hockey players to stand in support. Of, of injustices to black Americans in this country really gives you an indication. We talk about how far things have come. To me, that's an indicator that we're a lot further along than where we used to be with a lot further to go. So what happens next? You've now had this awakening uh, in this moment of a lot of activism. I hate to say that I'm certain there are going to be more of these incidences. There's, it's inevitable. You have to be blind to what's been going on and foolish to assume that wrongful police shootings and other kinds of police brutality are going to stop. So we're going to see more of these incidences. We have now have a, a racial justice movement that has broadened and is broader and deeper than it's ever been, that encompasses more, not just more black people, but also more white people, more white people marching alongside yeah. black people. All of this stuff happening. 
But what happens next? What is the NBA? What are the Bucks? What do people do? And what form does this activism tape going forward? And what are the goals of it? Like, what, do, what you know, the NBA can put its muscle into fixing what and how? Where do you see it going? Well, again, it's hard to ask the, the, the people who are the victims of a lot of the police abuse to be the ones who change the system. It's got to be ownership. It's got to be the it's got to be the, the the people with the political clout and political political clout equals economic clout. And yes, the players have a certain degree of that, but it, it pales in comparison to what these billionaire owners are able to do. So that's the pressure. I think the next step that is needed and and. When you talk about defund the police, we're not talking about that. I mean, I think what we're talking about is reallocate. And, and so you get a situation in uh, Kenosha where you got two cops with two peace officers with sidearms there to deal with the domestic situation. So now we want to, instead of police officers, maybe have conflict resolution experts or whatever. I mean, there's, there's structural stuff that you can do to change the approach of policing, but that only comes through having the politicians, the legislature in tune and active and willing to go out and, and, and make some change. That starts in the ballot box in the local elections. And that's why I love the fact that the entire league, uh, Milwaukee included, Fiserv Forum, LeBron James, they, they've spearheaded this effort to use the arenas as polling places. LeBron agreed to pay the fines of some felons down in Georgia who, until they paid those fines, weren't allowed to, to, to vote in their election. So and you know the process. It's about making things happen, not so much at the presidential level, even though that would be nice. But in the local elections, you've got to have a voice there, too. So it starts with all those things. And I think the players, I give them more credit than a lot of people do. I heard Charles Barkley say, well, what, what's next? Well, these guys took this stance. They talked to the lieutenant governor. Uh, they talked to the state attorney general about what their next steps and course of actions might be. I have faith that they'll get whatever counsel they need. But they've got the collective intelligence and passion for this issue to push it forward in a direction where it can be positive, where it can be productive. So uh, I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go, but these guys are so into it, John, right now. Uh, Sterling Brown, we talked to him earlier today. I mean, he's still into justice for Breonna Taylor, and he's not going to let this thing sit. So I think these guys are fired up right now, man. They're, they're into this cause right now, and it's nothing like having some young people, John, some young mm -hmm. people fired up. And, and look, and I go back biblical, but it wasn't Moses that got to the promised land. It was the Joshua generation. It was that next generation that had the energy to cross the Jordan and get over there and deal with what it had to deal with and finally get to that promised land. And as Martin Luther King says, I may not get there with you, but I feel like the movement is in great hands with these young people, their mindset right now, their consciousness right now, and their passion in particular right now for this issue. Do you think, uh, you know, when you hear, I hate to come back to mention the man's name again. I think I know your politics well enough to know what you're going to be working for headed in November. He did say this one thing in the context of the NBA boycott. He said, you know, I don't really know very much about the NBA, but it seems like they're becoming a political organization. And fans don't like that. You know, again, it's another version of shut up and dribble, but it's a little bit more. Yeah. It's, a, it's expressing a thing that there is, I think, there's always been tension between fans who basically wanted to see athletes and movie stars and other people who are in, in the entertainment business broadly defined. Like kind of, you know, look, we're not, we're not coming to you for political uh, talk. We're not coming to you for social protest we just want to be entertained you know tr trump is hitting on something that is a real thing in yeah. some part of the fan base which is i'll get my politics over here thank you this is where i come to watch basketball or baseball or nascar or whatever it is does that worry you at all that there will be a backlash to it that people will say 
you know, essentially, without saying it quite as gratuitously as as Laura Ingram says, it will essentially be with Trump, not in hating the athletes for adopting political positions, but that they might sort of be like, it's too much, you know, give me the, you know, play the game, just play the game. Yeah. Well, I think the one saving grace, and we talked about this, we touched on this, is that other sports, yeah. women's soccer, men's soccer, you get, you get this rainbow coalition to quote Jesse Jackson, but, but you get, you get a variety of different race. You get a bunch of white people behind you. If, if you, if you're looking on TV and it's not just African-American athletes, black athletes who are protesting, who are boycotting, but it, it, it's also white athletes who are doing the same thing. I mean, a beautiful ceremony at my, my daughter's school, George Floyd, um, um, the, the eight minutes and 48 seconds, uh, her school is out in Playa Vista, pretty much all white private school, 500 people, 80% were white. So, so they, when they went with the 848 of uh, silence, I mean, it, I started tearing up because you're watching these white people understand finally just kind of what's been going on. And not so much understand finally, but just just become empathetic and willing to take a stand. And so as long as you get not just black athletes boycotting out there on the forefront, but a variety of different athletes. And that's, that's what I love about the Bucks. Kyle Korver, some of these other white players, these teammates of, of, uh, of the Milwaukee Bucks, these white teammates. They are willing and, and, and able and desirous of doing something to help. If that is something that permeates through other professional sports with these white athletes standing side by side, then you can't point to this movement and try and uh, negate it and try and, and, and make it less than what it is because everybody's kind of in this thing together. And that's the thing that's going to make it go forward and withstand the initial. And then the other thing is that we're in these weird times, this pandemic you know, th- these are weird times we're in. So, so, so if not now, then when? This is a this is the time to I think step out and make these kinds of statements for these kinds of causes. Hopefully, things will settle down in a year or a few months from now or whatever. And uh, now is the perfect time because you've got people's attention. People are kind of yeah. held hostage in their homes and and sheltering at home and all this other stuff. And this is when you've got the the broadest audience to listen. And yeah, there are going to be some naysayers and people who don't want to hear this stuff. And feel that uh, you're impinging upon the sanctity of, of what sports brings into their lives, but oh you're well. Impinging on their right to be ignorant, I say. Impinging on their right to be ignorant is uh, is a <laughs> yeah. cause of the righteous and the just. I have one last thing for you, which is I want to kind of start a segment at the end of this podcast called "Parting Shots," going away from these rather weighty topics we've been discussing, and just ask you a straight up basketball question. All right, here you go. When I okay. ask you to put together uh, your all-time starting five your dream team across generations living or dead doesn't matter the whole history of the league i need the starting five marcus johnson's all-time living or dead beyond the grave heaven or hell whatever uh it's your starting five let's hear it i gotta start with wilt chamberlain just because he's wilt average 50 points a game you know, I mean, you look at his numbers. I know it was a different era, but Wilt is still Wilt. Had a chance to play against him when he was 45, 46 years old. He was still killing the young boys out there. <laughs> uh, Kareem would Kareem would be my power forward. I know he's a center, but this is my starting five, so I can't I can't exclude him. The all-time leading scorer, Magic Johnson, is my point guard. Magic to me was 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 a, a transformative figure uh, in basketball as 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 much as anybody I've ever played against or watched play. Julius Irvin, the doctor. A guy that I went uh, against head to head would have to be uh, the fourth player, the small forward on that team. Uh, he's a guy that in 1976, when the two leagues merged, he kind of saved the NBA. His excitement, the Afro, we all wanted to be like Doc John. We all wanted to be like Doc, to duck like Doc, to, 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 to be as cool as Doc, to dress like Doc, to have a wife like turquoise like Doc had. We all wanted everything Doc had. Uh, and then finally, Michael Jordan. 
I mean, you got to, you know, I got to put Michael Jordan on that starting five uh, just because of who he is. And, and he uh, actually had my poster up in his dorm room down in North Carolina and says that I was one of his favorite players when he was in college. So that even gives him more props in terms of where, I, where I'm standing. But, but, but Michael, in terms of just uh, the best defensively, the best offensively when he played and his competitive in, in the special that we watched on, on Michael Jordan, you saw that competitive, that competitive when he was holding that baseball bat and he was talking about how, yeah, everybody, you know, everybody talks a lot of shit, you know, <laughs> until, until the game gets on the line. Then you know, he's holding that baseball bat, smoking a cigar. And he, I mean, that was like quintessential Michael Jordan. So I uh, just can't leave Michael out. So, so Wilt, Kareem, Doc, Magic, Michael would be my all-time starting five. That's my pardon shot right there. Buddy. That is a pretty amazing starting five. I'm not going to tell LeBron that you left him off the team. I'll, we'll leave that for. We'll, yeah, well, we'll, I mean, we'll leave that. We'll leave that <laughs> for. We'll leave that for another day. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, he he still got some things to some things to do right now. But even but th- at 35 years old, he's a, he's amazing in terms of what he what he's done in his career. But. I like I like my starting five. It's uh, it's great to see you, brother. Uh, I'm sorry we missed you out here in Milwaukee, and thanks for taking the time. And stay safe, okay? We'll do. You do the same, man. Thank you. Final thank you to Marcus Johnson for being the first guest on Hell and High Water. If you like this episode, or at least if you liked it enough to try another one, please subscribe to the pod and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. That helps us out a lot. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Ali Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount.